chapter 1, verse 3. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Hear the words of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for my brother, Jonathan. Lord, I pray that you would speak through him to us the message that you would have us to hear today. God, I pray that uh, your power would rest upon him, that he would speak boldly, faithfully, and courageously for you. Lord, open our ears and our hearts, Lord, to hear what you would have to say to us. We love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know what it was like for you guys growing up, um, but for most of us, we have that experience of just being involved with music in in some way, shape, or form. You have favorite song, favorite genre of music, um, certain period of time where you listen really heavily to certain certain bits of of music. For me, growing up, it was uh, outside the St. Louis area, so the whole little hometown that I grew up in, we uh, got a lot of St. Louis stations. And the station I always found myself drifting to was uh, the oldie station, um, Clue 103.3. And so there I was as um, second grader, third grader, fourth, fifth. I had my own little radio up through junior high um, and up to high school. I remember just listening to, to that radio station a lot, listening to songs, liking songs because they were Cool songs, good songs, good music. Didn't really know what the lyrics were about. Um, didn't know the context of most of these, these oldies um, stations. Found my taste drifting more towards sometimes classical rock, things of, things of that nature. Um, but one of those songs I can look back and remember liking because the, I like the way just the music was arranged, but then later learned that the meaning of the song had a really, really very big impact for its lyrics and what it was speaking to at that time, at that time was a song called Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival or CCR. Um, cool tune. It's got a lot of awards. There's a, it's, a, it's on lists of top 100s, top 500s, and it always ranks really high as a song that was very big for the time it was written. It came out in 1969. It was speaking about the Viet- Vietnam War. Um, but it wasn't until recently that I just learned that there was a specific event that was going on that caused John Fogarty, the, the lead guy, the, the, the lyric writer for this song, Fortunate Son, um, was a wedding that took place in 1968, the year before this song was written. It was the wedding of David Eisenhower, the grandson of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, was marrying Julie Nixon, who was the daughter of President Richard Nixon. So as David Eisenhower and Julie Nixon were getting married, it was the creeping up on the height of Vietnam War. There was a lot of people divided, leaning one way or the other. And as Fogarty was looking back and just wading through just all the tensions and all the, all the, just, um, the bits of culture and how people were for or against the Vietnam War, he, he was struck with this idea. And this, this song, the gist of the song, Fortunate Son, comes down to this. He's attacking the idea that there are within America those whom he would classify as the fortunate sons. Those who are pro-war, want it, like it, cheer for it, root it on. But they are those people who belong to a specific class, those elites, the people with money, the ones who have those right last names, born into the right families like the Nixons and the Eisenhowers. These are the people who are the fortunate sons. They're not going to have to go to war because of who they were and what family they've been, they've been born into. You get, you get this lyric from this song. Some folks are, are born silver spoon in hand. Lord, don't they help themselves, but when the tax man comes to the door, Lord, the house looks like a rummage sale. It ain't me, it ain't me, I am no millionaire's son. It ain't me, it ain't me, I am no fortunate one. And he's looking at this idea that just because they have a particular last name, they are fortunate. 
they are not going to have to go and throw their life on the line for the cause of the Vietnam War. Others are going to have to go and pay the cost with their own lives. And for these fortunate sons, who they are, what families they'd been born into, brought about special privileges. So when we start turning to this, what I've been calling this big section, sort of the, the interstate of First Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, we're going to take three weeks to work through this, and we're starting with week one today. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5. What you're going to see is that Peter is going to basically crunch together his big idea that is going to cast its shadow over the rest of the book of First Peter. That these believers in Asia Minor, they have been born again to a living hope. And just as those fortunate sons that Fogarty was writing about, because of who they are and what families they've been born into, the, they have special privileges now because of the name and the family, who their father is, who their mother is. These believers, in a very similar way, have a special privilege that's coming to them. These elect exiles of Asia Minor are foreknown by God the Father. They're sanctified by the Spirit. They have been cleansed. They've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to see this phrase. It's going to be the key phrase that a lot of what we're going to say this morning in verses 3, 4, and 5, it revolves around this idea that they have been born again. They are now part of a new family. These believers once were not a people, now they are a people. They once were not part of God's family, but now they are part of God's family. And because they are now part of God's family, and just as people receive their identity and their citizenship, their socioeconomic class from their parents, these Christians have a new identity. They are God's people. They have a new citizenship. They're part of Christ's kingdom. They are citizens of his kingdom. And these identities, this citizenship, completely redefines who they are. For these Christians, being born again according to the mercy of God the Father brings a new identity along with new benefits that previously they could not claim. They have been born again to a living hope. They have a promised inheritance and they have a salvation that is being guarded by God the Father. It's helpful to remember that this verses, these verses 3 through 5, especially this morning, verses, oh, I'm sorry, these verses 3 through 12, especially these verses 3 through 5, Peter's writing this letter to those who are suffering persecution in Asia Minor. His aim was to encourage, to reassure these believers that no matter what may come in the horizontal, no matter if it's suffering or persecution, unjust words, people maligning you or mocking you, no matter what may come on you in the horizontal, we are to lift our eyes to this promised inheritance that we have, this living hope that we have, this future salvation that we, that we will know on that final day of consummation when Christ comes riding in on the clouds. So today we're going to see that Peter is going to make a three-pronged argument. And his first argument for, to carry this idea that they've been born again to a living hope is going to come in verses 3 through 5. And this morning what we're going to see is this. He's going to say, God is worthy of worship. God is worthy to be praised. And it's going to come in that very front sentence there where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to see this idea, God is to be blessed as the author and guardian of our salvation. God is to be blessed as the author and guardian of our salvation. So we're going to split these verses, three through five. We're going to divide them up into three ways. We're going to see that God is to be blessed. Then we're going to ask the question, why? Why is God to be blessed? And Peter gives these believers in Asia Minor two reasons. Because God is the cause of new birth. That's why he is worthy to be blessed. And God is the guardian of our future salvation. This is the second reason why God is worthy to be blessed, to be praised, to be worshipped. So go ahead and grab your copy of Scripture. Look at verse 3 there. Look at that first phrase that we see Chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Really what this is is an overflow of praise for everything that has just been said. Last week we said Peter has put before the believers a six-fold way to show. These are six ways, six identifiers, six markers in the life of these believers where Peter says because these things are true, these are facts, truths, evidence that you belong to God's people. You are elect. You are exiles. You are of the dispersion. You are known by the Father. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. You've been cleansed by Jesus Christ. And Peter says, these are all things that should well up as truths, well up as doctrine, well up as things that we know, and we aren't just merely to know them, but the right response to knowing these things is worship. Because of these sixfold truths that have been placed before the believers, Peter says, God is to be blessed for these things. But he's also not just looking backward and saying, because of what I said in verse 1 and verse 2, God is to be praised. But God is to be praised for all of these things I'm about ready to say. And as we come over the next coming weeks and we look at verses 6 through 9 and 10 through 12, this idea of God is to be blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a towering exhortation that's going to cast its shadow all the way down to verse 12. But today we're going to see that he's going to call them to bless the Lord because God is the author of salvation. We see again that Peter is running this through a Trinitarian grid. Last week we made note that God is the author of our salvation, and you saw it from God the Father's standpoint. We saw it through the Spirit's standpoint, and we saw it from Christ's standpoint. And even in this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we, we, we see is that God and Father are describing the same person. It's talking about God the Father. We see the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord? Jesus is the Lord. He is to be blessed. It smacks of something like John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. It's this idea, again, that Christ submits himself to the Father. The Father loves and rules and reigns over all things. And the Son is pleased to submit, to be obedient to the Father. And then just as he says it, and as quickly as he says it, off he goes. This is an apostolic greeting. Paul uses the same sort of greeting in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He uses the same greeting in Ephesians chapter 1 verbatim where they all say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of praise. Now Peter in his own way is going to turn his attention to two ways that will help us see why he is worthy of praise. So God is to be blessed. The smart question I always ask is why? Why? What makes him so worthy of praise? What makes him so worthy of worship? Look in your copy of Scripture. God is to be blessed because God is the cause of new birth. Right after Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us the reason. God is to be blessed because according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again. Born again to what? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God is the author of salvation. God is the cause of new birth in sinners. Peter is pushing forward this idea that God has caused us to be born again. Notice that God is the cause. We receive the result. God the cause acted upon us and new birth was the result in our hearts. We once were dead, now we've been made alive. God acted Spiritual death died, and new life took hold in the sinner's heart. This is a beautiful truth because what Peter's going to do is saying, because God is the author of salvation, because he has caused us to be born again, he is worthy of praise. See, nobody decides to be born. The act of life, being born, is something that always happens to you. We have four children, Rebecca, 
Jonathan, Judah, and Malachi. In each instance, to the, to the best of my knowledge, none of those kids came along and go, can we get this whole birthing thing going? Like, now, maybe so I can see you in nine months. I mean, I understand that's what it takes, and how about we start doing this now so this can happen, and then we do all these things. I've, I've got a schedule to keep here. My life needs to start on March 6, 2006. That didn't happen. It's foolish to think that way. Being born is something that happened to my daughter. Being born is something that happened to, to my three sons. See, nobody decides to be, to be born. The act of life, the act of being born is something that happens to you. No one makes this decision. No one initiates this idea of being born. Just as this is true with physical birth, Peter is emphasizing the truth that the New Testament scriptures press before us over and over again. New birth is rooted in God. God causes us to be born again. God is the one who initiates new life in sinners. It's the same with you, with new birth, with being born again. We see this in John chapter 3. When Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, a guy named Nicodemus. This phrase, born again, isn't a phrase that pops up a lot. But when it does, it's always couched in this idea that God comes, God initiates, God acts, and God is the one who brings dead people back to life. God is the one who brings spiritual people who are far from God, close to God. John chapter 3, Jesus says this. There was a man... Of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a, a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus right here is already tying this idea together. To be born again, to have new life, that is the requirement to see the kingdom of God, to have eternal life, to have life with God under the rule and the reign of God. If you want to have communion, if you want to have fellowship, if you want to have relationship with King Jesus, you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus turns to him and says in utter confusion, how can a man be born when he is old because like it's not it's not computing there's a disconnect there you're telling me i must be born again for him the idea of being born again is just rooted in this i was born once i came i came from my mother and my father like people only that only happens to people once can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born so jesus if love and kindness and patience turns to Nicodemus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Listen, Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Notice that Jesus is anchoring salvation, this idea of being born again, this idea of new life, to a member of the Trinity. He's anchoring it in the, in the hands of God. It's of the Spirit. Peter's saying something very similar here. Born again, new life is rooted in God as the cause. But notice how he modifies this idea. Yes, God has caused us to be born again, but it is according to his great mercy. To his great mercy. Mercy is the reason why God acts on spiritually dead people and brings them to life and makes them alive. See, our spiritual birth is not because of us. Your spiritual birth, you being born again, you being made alive in Christ Jesus is not because you did something to earn it. It's not because we pressured God to know us or somehow we put him in debt to us. God, I did this thing. You owe me one. Why don't you just throw me a bone and give me some eternal life? Like that doesn't happen. See, we are recipients of the new birth according to his great mercy. 
Exodus 34, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a God gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's, it's the scripture of assurance that Charles read this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, when he interacted with us who are spiritually dead, he did so because he is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Mercy extended to sinners is part and parcel with God's character. God is a God gracious. God is a God merciful. God is a God full of steadfast love. And when he causes us to be born again, it's not out of spite. It's not out of anger. It's not out of judgment. It's not because he had nothing better to do that day. It's because it was according to his great mercy. But notice that this idea of being born again, we are born again to something. See, Peter just doesn't say, hey, God's worthy of praise. He's caused you to be born again, period. All right, let's get on, let's go on to the next step. He said, we've been born again to something. So Peter's starting to round the corner now, and what he's about ready to press into the laps of the believers is this. Listen, life is hard. We talked about this last week. The saints in Asia Minor were being persecuted because they were believers and for no other reason. They were suffering because they were Christians, because they were lovers of the gospel. People looked at them and said, we don't like you. We're going to treat you wrongly. We're going to persecute you. We're going to make you suffer. We're going to malign you. We're going to mock you. We're going to hurt you. We're going to steal your goods. Why? Because you're a Christian. Life was not easy for the recipients of this letter. So what Peter is starting to do is round the corner going, listen, it doesn't matter what comes your way in life. Whatever the circumstances are in the horizontal, God is always and forever worthy of praise. We've been born again to a living hope, and he's going to press two big things before them. He's going to say, listen, you have been born again to a living hope. There's something of a future reward that is coming your way, a a living hope. There's something of an inheritance that is yours that is coming your way, and we are to cast our gaze, we're to lift our eyes, tilt our head to the horizon and go, because that is true out there, I can handle what is going on right now in the moment. Peter says they have been born again to a living hope. Look at your copy of Scripture there. To a living hope, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, those who have been born again, because God in mercy has applied the gospel to their hearts, they have hope that is alive. They have a living hope. This is the opposite of dead hope. Dead despair. Peter draws their eyes up and toward the future. These suffering saints can look at their circumstances and not drift off into doubt and confusion. This living hope isn't rooted in thin air. This isn't some feel-good-ism. This isn't like, man, life's tough. Just sort of buck buck up, man. White-knuckle this. Bite the bullet. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get through this. It's no, you have a future reward. There is something great that God has saved you to. This isn't some sort of just, man, I'm just going to try to make up something. Listen, listen, friend, just don't let the, the worries and the cares of life get you down. Just feel good in the situation. He's not saying that. He's coming to them and he's speaking to them directly saying, listen, you have a living hope. And as sure as Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead is as sure that this living hope is yours. They've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead directly supplies hope that is alive in the present. Their hope is the, of the resurrection. Their hope is the hope of resurrection. Their hope is the hope of triumph over death. See, whatever happens to them in this world, Peter is implying, and he's going to say several times later in his letter, 
that this stuff is trivial compared to the blessings of the future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the shout of heaven that says, Satan is a defeated foe. Sin no longer has authority. Death has died. And in giving life to Christ, God gave life to all those who are united to Christ. God's elect have a hope that is as sure as Christ's resurrection. Christ has not just made salvation possible, he has made it sure. See, this is why the doctrine of the resurrection is so crucial to our faith. Do you you sense how hope-giving this is? The wages of sin is death. The moment that Adam and Eve disregarded God, sinned against God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the scriptures have been groaning and have been yearning. We need some hope here in this situation. We need somebody who can reverse the fall. We need somebody who can come and kill Satan, kill death, kill sin. And Peter here is pointing and saying that the resurrection is the shout of heaven going, brothers and sisters, we have hope, a living hope. We don't have dead despair here. Because the resurrection is Jesus bursting forth from the grave, declaring as the ruling and reigning king with all authority over earth, over heaven, and saying everything is subjected to my feet. And this is our Lord. This is our king. We are citizens of his kingdom. It's like, I want to be the guy serving that king. Don't give me the weak and pansy king. I want the king who says, listen, I'm the top. Everything's in subjection to me. And you want to know the one sign the scriptures are constantly pointing to, saying that King Jesus is the guy at the top of the heap. It's always run through the channel of the resurrection. Because Jesus burst forth from the grave, we can with joy come and embrace no matter what comes this way. Because why? Man, Jesus has got this. Death couldn't keep him down. Every other person in the history of the world has died and gone to the grave. Jesus died and burst forth from the grave. Application for you is living hope. Jesus has got this. Satan defeated. Death is dead. Sin no longer has a final say in the matter of life. Not only have these saints been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but they've been born again. Look at verse 4 in your copy of Scripture there. They've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Remember what Peter's doing here. He's explaining further to these believers. Remember the fortunate son illustration? He's explaining to them, because God has saved you, because God has caused you, sir, you, ma'am, to be born again, these are things that are now your privilege. Because God is your father, because God is your daddy, you get these things that come directly from him. You get living hope, sir. You also get a promised inheritance. He's going to tease out further this idea of what a living hope is. And he's going to now turn to the language of inheritance. This is the language of being an heir, an heir of God, an heir of Christ. We get an inheritance. See, not only are these believers born again to a living hope, but they're born again to an inheritance. This verse is further explaining the idea of what a living hope looks like. See, when you go back and you look in the Old Testament, this idea of inheritance was a big deal. It was a big deal to God's people in the Old Testament because they had a promised land, a promised inheritance. If you obey what God says, you will receive the reward, a promised land, a promised inheritance. But they didn't obey God. And what happened? They actually became exiles, something we talked about last week. But see, when Peter comes and says to these saints that you've been born again to an inheritance, what he's not talking about is some geographic parcel of dirt and grass. He's taking it to a different level. 
See, in the Old Testament, the inheritance for God's people is a promised land. And while they wandered in the wilderness, they were sustained by the promise of their inheritance. While the people messed up and they were just floating around in the desert for 40 years waiting for that time to come to an end so they can go finally claim that inheritance that God has given them, they were sustained by the promise. God has said he's going to give it. I'm going to trust and rest that this inheritance is a promise and that God keeps his word, that God is not a liar. And Peter, here in the New Testament, now speaking to these Gentile Christians, says, hey, remember Israel in the wilderness? Remember how God gave them a promised inheritance? Listen, you've got an inheritance too. The New Testament people of God are exiles and sojourners. We saw that language last week. He's going to pick up that language again in chapter 2, verse 11. These New Testament believers are not wandering beggars. Cast off from their possessions. They hold a sure title to the inheritance that God has given them. It's an inheritance that is imperishable. It will never be corrupted. Never be corrupted. It's an inheritance that is undefiled. It will never lose its luster. It will never lose its beauty. It will never become stained. It will never become filthy. This inheritance is unfading. It will last forever. And by the way, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. God is the one who reserves this promised inheritance for believers. And Peter coming along and saying, God has a promised inheritance. God has made sure that it's imperishable. God has made sure it's undefiled. God has made sure it's unfading. God has made sure it's kept in heaven for you. See, this is good news because what was going on in the world that it's around them? Things that they may have inherited from their father and their mother are being taken away from them. Their homes which may have been inherited from a family member are being taken away from them. Things that they once thought would never perish are perishing. Things that they thought might be pure are now becoming undefiled. Things that they thought were beautiful and good and sweet are now being robbed and torn away from them. Things that were seemingly in their mind unfading are now crashing all around them. So Peter comes in and says, listen, everything around you that was an earthly inheritance is crashing to the ground, but hold tight to this truth. You have a promised inheritance. You have this living hope, and it will never perish. It will never be defiled. It will never fade, and God is keeping this in heaven for you. So again, he's, he's lifting their chin. You can almost hear Peter through his words speaking on God's behalf where these people were becoming downhearted. They were becoming disheartened. Their hope was, was beginning to wane. And Peter comes along as the hand of God. And you can just see him putting his fingers under their chin, lifting their eyes to the horizon, going, Brother, sister, do you have a living hope. You have a promised inheritance. This crashing, but bank on this one true thing. And Peter emphasized with these words in the strongest possible terms the security and certainty of the reward awaiting believers. See, God keeps the promised reward for those in heaven. God keeps the promised reward. See, this is the beauty of your God not being a liar. This is the beauty of your God always telling the truth. This is the beauty of your God and my God being a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Because when he says something, it comes to pass. And in times when worlds around you are crumbling, this is an anchor for the soul. So not only is God to be blessed for new birth, but God is to be blessed because God is the guardian of our future salvation. So Peter comes along, remember he says this, you, sir, need to bless God. Well, why, Peter? Prove it to me, so to speak. Well, let me tell you, he's caused you to be born again. You can bless God for that. Let me tell you another reason why you can bless and praise God. Because you are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at verse 5 there in your copy of Scripture. God is to be blessed because you who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, the promised inheritance is being kept safe in heaven. 
But this is also true of the heirs for whom it is being kept. These believers, these heirs of the promise, these people who have been born again according to the mercy of God, now, Peter says, not only is your inheritance being kept in heaven for you, but your salvation is being guarded. Your salvation is being shielded. Your salvation is being kept ready to be revealed in the last time. See, Peter now turns and describes inheritance in terms of salvation, living hope, promised inheritance, this future salvation. These are all synonymous ideas. They're all talking back and forth. And Peter's just like, like a jewel that you lift up that's just this magnificent jewel and it has all these facets on the jewel and you, you hold it up to the light and you're like, man, that's beautiful. And maybe the, the light catches a facet and you, you turn and you're like, man, that's beautiful. What, what Peter's doing is lifting up this, this idea of salvation, this idea of a future hope, this idea of a promised inheritance. And he's just turning it in the, in the light of the gospel, he's going, man, this thing's beautiful. I can't, I can't stop talking about it. I just feel like I need to keep, keep coming at it in all these different directions. And that's exactly what he's doing here in verse 5 when he, when he talks about salvation in this way. He's saying, man, I, I can't just, it's not good enough for me just to talk about a living hope. I, I feel like I need to put this in terms of an inheritance. I, I, I can't just let this sit here at inheritance. I need to talk to you about this in terms of salvation. Those who God has caused to be born again, they have a living hope. They have an inheritance. We have salvation which has been prepared by God for us. I love this. We are being guarded for a salvation. It is by God's power and it is through faith. It's by God's power and it's through faith. See, God preserves believers so that they will receive their final inheritance and experience the joy of future salvation. This is what it means when it says, we are being guarded by God's power. When you and I are being guarded for salvation by God's power, what Peter is saying is this, God preserves believers so that they will receive their final inheritance, that living hope, the salvation they're going to experience this. It's the joy. Of the, it's this future thing again that he's talking about, but he doesn't just leave it there. He says we don't, we don't just merely experience being guarded for a salvation by God's power, but it also runs through the avenue of faith. So simultaneously, while God is preserving believers so that they will receive their final inheritance, believers are called to exercise faith. God's power protects us because his power is the means by which our faith is sustained. So when Peter comes to us and he's talking to us in verses 3 through 5, and he's seeking to encourage these, these believers of Asia Minor, believers who are legitimately suffering, believers who are legitimately being persecuted, he doesn't come to them and say, shake your fist at God. He doesn't come to them and say, God has messed up. You have a right on this one to argue against God. No, he comes to them and says, in the midst of this situation, a situation I'm sure none of them would have planned for themselves, Peter comes and says, it doesn't matter whether you plan this or didn't plan it, the right reaction is worship. God is to be blessed. God is to be worshipped. God is to be praised because he is the author and guardian of our salvation. See, there's a formula that Peter's not working here. We are born again to a living hope plus born again to an inheritance plus being guarded for a salvation, even in the midst of suffering, and when you add up all these parts of the formula, the answer is praise. The answer is worship. See, in general, it's not too hard to bless God as the author of our salvation. If you go and just engage with any believer who understands anything about how they were brought into the kingdom, of how they were born again, 
They should have these bare bone recognition. I once was a sinner. Jesus Christ is a savior. I've repented of my sins and placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation. Any believer who understands that ought to at no time have any problem with praising God for salvation. So to worship God, to bless God as the author of salvation, not so tough. It's, it's not, that's not too hard of a thing to do. We generally can knock that out and be good with it. But when it comes to worshiping God, praising God, blessing God as the guardian of our salvation, that sometimes becomes a little bit, a little bit harder. Oftentimes, blessing God as the guardian of our salvation is hard. See, God is guarding us by his power through faith. The question you have to answer is this, guarding us from what exactly? What is he guarding us from? What is he he guarding? What is he keeping us from? And this is where the context and the background of the letter comes in place. See, it would be easy to come along and read this and go, man, God is guarding me for salvation. God is going to keep me. So, so maybe nothing hard is going to come my way. Maybe life is going to be good. Sometimes when you're sharing the gospel or talking with an unbeliever, sometimes we might somehow mistakenly convey that once you accept the gospel, once you embrace Jesus Christ by faith saying, I need Jesus to make me right with the Father through his death, burial, resurrection. Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death. I need that. By faith, I embrace that. I lay hold of this for my life. Sometimes we as believers will mistakenly convey that when that happens to you, life is going to get very, very good for you. Like life was a living hell up until you met Jesus. And because the gospel's in your life, everything's going to be like high fives and puppy dogs. Walk along the primrose path. It's all going to be good for you, man. But see, then you read a book like First Peter, and you realize that's not really the case for believers. We're going to enter the kingdom of heaven with much trial and persecution. Peter says, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that because we are children of God and we call God Abba, Father, persecution is going to be coming our way. The background to the letter of 1 Peter is suffering because they're Christians, persecution because they're Christians, people misjudging them, maligning them, mocking them because they're Christians. See, what we learn from 1 Peter is this, that when Peter says God is guarding us by his power through faith, he's not my guardian to keep me from suffering. He's not guarding me from persecution. He's not guarding me from hard times. He's not guarding me from cancer. He's not guarding me from sickness. He's not guarding me from death, from stress, from trouble, from bad relationships, from foolish decisions, from lack of money. God is not guarding us from these things. So then the question becomes, well, what in the world is he guarding us from? See, one Peter, the believers were suffering various forms of these things, so it can't be that. Peter says God is the guardian of our future salvation. See, and Peter's argument is that this is the better end of the deal. For God is worthy of being blessed even through suffering. So track with me here. So what Peter does is he comes to the believers and says, listen, God is guarding you. And whether it was a preemptive strike or he is trying to think through these people, most people would go, man, that's awesome God is guarding me because I need some guarding right now. I'm suffering and I'm being persecuted. But Peter doesn't apply this guardianship, this shielding of God in the way of God is going to make all these things go away. What Peter is saying, God is going to guard you so that through faith you will not fall away even in the midst of these things. Even in the midst of suffering and persecution, God is worthy of praise. Don't let these horizontal things rob you of the joy and the privilege of worshiping God. God is guarding you and keeping you. No matter how much of these things try to creep in on you, God in this moment is still worthy of praise. See, often we think the exact opposite. What we say is my, my worship o meter will get really high when things are happening 
to me really good. When life is peachy, when life is keen, when life is good, then we often think, if only I could get to normal, if only I could get to that place where life isn't hard, where there's no suffering, there's no persecution, everything's in order, everything's in check, then when I reach that place, my worship meter will be off the charts. And when things go really, 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 really bad, suffering, persecution, cancer, sickness, death, lack of money, etc., 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 then what we often do is go, because these things are so bad, Worship goes down. And Peter says the more joyous place is to find yourself is like this. Worship meter off the charts, whether it's suffering and persecution or whether it's no suffering and persecution. See, often our heart thinks the exact opposite of what Peter tries to lay in our lap. Often my heart thinks the exact opposite in this way. See, I think God ought to be the guardian of my suffering. Often I think... I will find my happiness in this life if God would just guard me from, from those pesky little things that, that seek to derail me and knock me off track. There's times when I find myself thinking, God, if you would just do this, if you would just make my life smooth, just make my life easy, then I would find myself in the place where I go, man, life is sweet. Let's just really worship God right now. But Peter is saying, worship and knowing the sweetness of praising God is actually found in the exact opposite of that thinking. Go and talk to any Christian who has suffered for the cause of Christ, and that person will out-worship you and make you look like a fool. Because they know what it's like to love and bless and to worship God in the midst of suffering and persecution. See, I wanna, I'm going to get an illustration here, and it's paltry in comparison to what is being talked about here in 1 Peter. But it makes the point of how even in the the most minuscule of ways, we somehow try to barter with God or we go, God, I know you're a guardian of something, so why don't you guard me from these pesky things that make life unpleasant, and then when everything is just going good, I'm going to be in that happy place where I'll give you you worship, give give you blessing. So, Charles already mentioned it. The Canings are here because they love us, and the Canings are here because their house in which we live in flooded on Thursday night. Like, I didn't plan for that. I wasn't overly fired up about that. We're not going to run out down the aisleway here high-fiving. Flooded house. Yeah, you know, we're about to rip out carpet. Spend money, yes, that we don't want to spend. Like, we're not going to do that. Like, and I found myself thinking, like, man, this is just horribly untimely. Man, God, couldn't you have, like, stuck your finger in the plug or something to stop the water from coming back in? Like, God, like, why did you have to let this happen now? Like, you could have, you could have done it. I mean, this is just, it, it, it ruined my weekend. This just wasn't what I was wanting. And God, uh, I know I should probably be worshiping you and praising you in the midst of this, but God, I'm just going to put worship on hold right now. Let's just wait till everything sort of gets back to normal and... We sort of hit an even, smooth flow, and then it'll be like, yeah, man, things are going good. Now let's praise God. I mean, that's, now that's a paltry comparison to what's going on in the lives of these believers, but it goes to illustrate this idea that often we sin against God when we don't worship him as we ought to. That's in the good, and that's in the, especially in the bad. See, in God's ordering of things, saying to God, only when you guard me from the wrong, from the bad, from the unpleasant, then I will worship you, is sinful thinking. It's wrong thinking. Peter is calling us to lay hold of our living hope, to lay hold of our promised inheritance, to lay hold of our future salvation, and let this reorder our lives. To realize that as elect exiles, we have the privilege of suffering. For when we suffer well with our eyes fixed on the future prize, we preach a better message to the world. It is in these times we become a testimony of God's grace for salvation is better than anything this world has to offer. The reason why the gospel exploded in the New Testament on the heels of persecution is because as these people were being killed for their faith, 
They carried the good news with a worshiping heart to people who could have possibly hurt them, could have possibly killed them, but with joy in their hearts, they took the gospel with them as they were being persecuted, as they were suffering, as they were being driven. And the one thing that befuddles the world is this. They look upon Christians who in the midst of suffering, in the midst of life's unpleasantries, and they look at that and go, I do not know how to compute that. I don't know how to compute that. I mean, you should be cursing God. You should be cussing. You should be raising your middle finger to God. How in the world, in the midst of suffering and persecution, can you worship and testify to God's grace in your life? That is befuddling. But that is how the gospel goes forward. That is how Jesus is proclaimed. From the smallest of things like a flooding basement to the grandest of things of dying for your faith and everything in between, Peter is saying this, you have a living hope, you have a promised inheritance, you have a future reward of salvation because that is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In this moment you can go, light and momentary, I'm going to worship God right now. And as I worship God right now, the world looks in and goes, what? And then you can step into that moment and go, the reason why I can worship God right now in the midst of this suffering and persecution is because I have a living hope. I have something more than this. See, you're, you're living for this world. This world is perishing. This world is fading. I've got something that's imperishable, unfading. And it speaks into my world now. And I can bank on it now. I can rest on it now. Let me tell you about this Jesus who has put me in this place. And then you roll right into the gospel. But oftentimes we take the route of just moaning, crying, feeling sorry for ourselves. And we miss the opportunity to testify to God's grace in the midst of suffering. And the gospel opportunity slips right out, out the door. So let me challenge you guys with this. From flooding basements to being mocked and maligned at work because you decided to share the gospel with somebody to a boss that just has it out for you, no other reason because you're a believer. Embrace that. Worship in that because it will heap burning coals on their heads, Peter says, Paul says in the book of Romans. It will befuddle the world and the gospel will advance. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. I ask that you would do a great work in our lives, helping us to worship in the midst of suffering. You, God, are worthy to be praised because you are the author and guardian of our salvation. Amen.